0: Well, it is good to be coming to the end of Luke. So Luke 23, we are starting in verse 1, and we'll read all the way through verse 26. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, And forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, So we questioned him at some length, but he, Jesus, made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, I will, therefore, punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city, and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! He released the man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Father, we thank you now for this, your word. Your word is truth. Father, I pray for the illumination of your Holy Spirit that we might understand and glean the wisdom, O oh God, of this trial narrative in Luke, that we might know more about the person, the work, and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, whom we profess as Lord, that something of his passion for us and for the Father's will may be communicated to us, that we might be transformed by it and helped by it and leave differently than the way we came in. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the ancient world was no stranger to stories of dying and rising gods. They're referred to nowadays as the dying and rising god myth. Osiris was killed by his brother Seth And cut into many pieces and scattered. His wife Isis gathered the pieces together and he was reincarnated as the Egyptian god of the underworld and judge of the dead. Dionysus was the Greek god of wine and dates to about the 1200s before Christ. The son of Zeus and a mortal woman. Dionysus was killed and then brought back to life. Adonis was from about 600 B.C. and was a Greek god who was killed and then brought back to life by Zeus. Attis was another story from about the 13th century before Christ. And Attis was a vegetation god from Central Asia Minor brought back to life by his lover, Sybil. In the Canaanite religion, Baal was a part of the life cycle of life and death. Baal and Mot are sons of the supreme god El. If that sounds familiar, the name El, El is a generic Canaanite word for God, and it is a borrow word used by the Hebrews to refer to the God of the Bible at times, El Shaddai, and other names like that. And in the heat of the summer. Um, Mott took over and Baal died and he was resurrected when his sister wife kills Mott. And the conceptual similarity of all of these stories of dying and rising God myths were not lost on the writers of the New Testament, specifically the gospel writers. They were aware of these stories, they knew of these stories, and they saw no semblance at all of irony in the Jesus story. Because whereas all of these other gods of rising, all these other stories of rising and dying gods are abstract, meaning that the location, place, and time of their death and resurrection are immaterial. They're abstract stories. In fact, they don't even matter. In contrast, the death, of the, the, the Son of God is a historical event. And whereas most of those other stories of those other gods, dying and rising, were used to explain the cycles of the seasons, the trial of Jesus grounds the events surrounding his death in real geographical locations with real political leaders And history bears those people out as really having existed. There is a real record that a man named Pilate existed. There there are real records that Herod was a king of the Jews during that time. Real events, real geography, a real place in time with real people. And this explains to us how a second-rate Roman governor named Pilate wound up in our creed. I mean, you think about it. How in the world, why in the world would someone like that be included in our creed? I believe in God the Father, Almighty Maker of heaven and earth, and I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, and He suffered under Pontius Pilate. Burned into our creed to be remembered for all of time, for Christians at least, That Jesus suffered and died under Pontius Pilate, this real person. Seems like a weird thing to memorialize, the man who sentenced Jesus to die. Pilate and Herod were real people. The trial is a real historical event, as historical as Julius Caesar crossing the Rubicon in 49 B.C. Or as historical as the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 79 A.D. in Italy no less historical, no less real. And the distance between those myths and the story of Jesus and his trial and death are infinite because they have nothing to do with each other. The trial of Jesus is a forensic drama that plays out in a real Roman court. The Jewish Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish court, would have loved to kill Jesus right on the spot, but they had no authority to try and execute people. They had no judicial authority. They could make religious declarations, but they could not arrest and execute people because the Romans were in power. And so they brought Jesus up on three political charges— which revolve around three accusations that were necessary to justify his murder. And the three accusations are these. They said, this fellow is subverting our nation. In other words, he is perverting the laws and leading us astray. He is a political revolutionary. The second charge was that Jesus forbade people from paying taxes to Caesar And we know that's not true because when they asked Jesus about who they should pay taxes to, you know the story. And if you don't know the story, Jesus said, show me the coin, which had Caesar's inscription on it. And Jesus says very wisely, render unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give unto God what belongs to God. And so they said on this second account that he opposed paying taxes to Caesar. And then third, the third charge was that he was going around claiming that he was Christ. Now Christ in the first century had a much more generic definition, and it simply meant the ruler or an anointed one. It did not necessarily mean a supernatural savior, the second person of the Trinity. For them, it had, it had a very broad meaning and they said that this, one is, this man is going around claiming to be the anointed one, a king. And each of them were lies. Each accusation was a lie. There was no sedition. He didn't deny paying taxes to Caesar. And it was not him, but the crowds that said he was Christ, king of the Jews. And Pilate wants to question Jesus, personally, and he asks him, are you king of the Jews? Now, the version of the Bible we read is the English Standard Version, the ESV, and the ESV has Jesus saying, answering Pilate's question of whether you're king of the Jews, Jesus says, you have said so, which is kind of a weird thing to say. In fact, the Greek construction is somewhat confusing. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, The New American Standard Bible interprets Jesus' response to Pilate's question, are you king of the Jews? With Jesus saying, it is as you say. But the New Testament scholar John Noland interprets Jesus' response to Pilate by saying when Jesus is asked, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, do you say so? And I think John Noland is on to something here because if it is really a question that Jesus makes when he is asked about whether he's a king and he puts the question back to Pilate by saying, is this something that you say of yourself? It is a brilliant move on Jesus' part. Because he's telling Pilate, it doesn't matter what they think. What do you think? Do you think I'm a king? It's a brilliant move. And Pilate, I believe, receives that question, looks Jesus up and down and says, this guy's no threat to Rome. This, this, this person doesn't, doesn't uh, lead anyone astray and compete with Caesar's power. And it's an ironic um, situation because when Pilate looks at Jesus, he says, I find no guilt in this man. And it's ironic because Pilate is a Roman governor, someone who has no sympathy for the Jews. Why would he care if some Mediterranean Jewish peasant was executed? And so in some ways, Pilate's words carry so much weight when he exonerates Jesus from the guilt that he's being accused of and the accusations he's being accused of. It's ironic because Jesus' own compatriots, his own countrymen, his own neighbors, get it wrong. They misinterpret him. And you remember that saying from Jesus, woe to you and to your children because you did not recognize the time of God's visitation on you. Woe to you and to your children and to this whole city because you did not recognize. You prayed, you cried, you, you longed for God's Messiah, and when God finally came, you didn't recognize it. And that's what's going on here. This is the manifestation of their inability to recognize the manifestation of God. The visitation of God Almighty in the person and work of this anointed one. And when Pilate recognizes that Jesus has no competition for Caesar, it raises this whole discussion for us about whether Christianity is political at all. Now, time doesn't permit me to give a full treatment of this subject, but I think Christians have raged about this for centuries, especially in the modern age, in the last hundred years or so, because there's one group that's saying Christianity is absolutely political, government should espouse Christian convictions, and there's an entirely other group that says, no, 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 Christianity is simply in the heart. Jesus reigns on the throne of our hearts. And you can understand this kind of language. You've heard it before when people say, accept Jesus as your personal savior, right? It's the idea that Jesus doesn't reign over the earth, but he reigns over me. And there's nothing wrong with that language necessarily. Well, I want to make a couple quick statements, even though that's not necessarily what this text is about. It has implications for how we think about that, because certainly Pilate didn't see Jesus as a threat, but was Jesus a threat? Well, Christianity is not political in the sense that it seeks power. So what Jesus was proclaiming in the kingdom of God was not a competing power structure with Rome, a, a, a competing political order with laws and rules and militaries to enforce by coercion. So Christianity is not political in that sense. When Christianity has sought power, often bad things happen. That's not to say that there haven't been times that God, uh, when God gives the church favor with the state, but the state is fickle. Sometimes Christianity has been in bed with power, and the church has prospered, and sometimes Christianity has been corrupted by that power, and history bears out some of the scars of that um, evil if you can say that on the other hand christianity is political in the sense that it seeks to influence hearts and minds for god it is political in the sense that it seeks to reorient our hearts around a different power structure which cause us to obey a whole nother set of laws that transcend man's laws and so, Christians at times have been deemed enemies of the state, not because they want to overthrow power, but because their allegiance is to another Lord, another king, another ruler. And we just saw this with Andrew Brunson and the last two years he spent in a Turkish prison. The whole time he did not deny his faith and was adamant that he was being imprisoned because of his testimony for Jesus. And he was. And because it's a Muslim country and they saw him not only as a foreigner, as an outsider, but because his allegiance was to Jesus and he couldn't just get in line in goose step with all of the Turkish laws and Turkish political systems, he was deemed as an enemy. And so Christianity at times is political, but not in the way we typically think about it. It is political because it has implications for all of life. It is political because it has... Implications for the orientations of our heart. And ultimately, where our deepest allegiances lie, and this is true for you and I as Americans also. Which means that our beloved country is not beyond the pale of rebelling against the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, I could go afar afield in what the future of this nation might look like. I pray and hope that there are good things in store for the United States, but if America falls, it won't be because the God of America fell. The Lord reigns, and empires come and go, but his kingdom is a kingdom which lasts forever. And so Christianity at times is a threat to political regimes, and it's no wonder that repressive regimes in history at different times, sought to stamp out Christianity. And they usually didn't start by knocking buildings down. They started usually by rounding people up. Now, in spite of Pilate's verdict that Jesus was innocent, the Jewish leaders are insistent, saying, he stirs up the people. In other words, he's inciting riots. You remember at another time in the book of Acts, the Pharisees were frustrated, and they said, the whole world has gone after him. Of course, the whole world had not gone after Jesus, but in their estimation, the multitudes and the crowds were following after Jesus, or the disciples. The whole world has gone after him. They, were, they, they thought that Jesus represented a threat to their religious order, and they were right to think that. He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee. And when Pilate hears that this Messiah figure is from Galilee, he sends him to Herod because Galilee was Herod's just jurisdiction. And this is the same Herod who is condemned and rebuked by John the baptizer. And there is this amazing relationship between Herod and John the baptizer who speaks out because Herod has married his brother's wife, and John says, this is unlawful for you to do. And normally you think a king would cut a prophet down like that, but there is something about the authentic, powerful words of a prophet who speaks with deep conviction. And Herod was intrigued by John until one day in drunken revelry, he had John beheaded This is the same Herod, who has heard about Jesus and thinks maybe he's the reincarnate John the Baptizer, and has heard that Jesus has been going around doing miracles, and he wants to see Jesus perform, like parlor tricks or like a circus act. And Herod questions Jesus, but Jesus, unlike his conversation with Pilate, he gives Herod no response. None. In verse 10, the chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arraying him in splendid clothing. And through it all, Jesus is utterly silent. And when you read this, that declaration from Isaiah the prophet comes ringing loud in our minds and in our hearts he was oppressed and afflicted yet he did not open his mouth he was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as sheep before her shearers is silent so he did not open his mouth here is the Lord of glory who's left the throne in heaven come down to earth, mocked and ridiculed, standing before some petty ruler in a backwater part of the world, being mocked, and he stands there with his head down, utterly silent. That is a scene of incredible cosmic irony. That the God who had all power in all of the universe sat there as the object of ridicule from someone who thought he had power, but had hardly any. This is the mystery of the gospel. This is the mystery of our salvation, that God would allow wicked men to accomplish his will by humiliating his son. And Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate and Pilate says, this man has done nothing worthy of death. Another declaration of innocence. I will punish and then release him. But they all cried out together, away with this man. And in a sick twist of irony, they cry out to have instead released Barabbas. And Barabbas means son of Abba, son of the father. And Barabbas is like Bizarro in the Superman comics. He is this evil, wicked twin of Jesus, if you will, this perverted, wicked mirror opposite of what Jesus is. Barabbas is a political revolutionary. Barabbas does refuse to pay taxes to Caesar. And Barabbas would have drawn people away from the loyalty of the emperor. He is everything, ironically, that they've accused Jesus of. Jesus is innocent. Barabbas is guilty of all three of those charges, and that's who they want. That's who they cry out for. A murderer and a robber. And when Pilate sees that this isn't about guilt or innocence... This is not about whether Jesus is really a threat to Rome, but that this prophet from Galilee, innocent though he may be, has gotten on their bad side. And they will not rest until he dies. He makes a decision of political expediency. And the text is careful to show that to us that this has nothing to do with guilt or innocence. This has everything to do with appeasing the mob. For three accusations, there are three declarations of Jesus' innocence by Pilate. And Jesus is condemned, and that's it. Just like that, the die is cast. His fate is sealed. Jesus will be crucified. The next section... Next week, we'll talk about the crucifixion. But in the book of Acts, Peter, when he stands up on the day of Pentecost, chapter 2, chapter 3 of the book of Acts, he's preaching to the Jewish mobs now. And he says, this is some time after the crucifixion, he says, you handed over and rejected Jesus in the presence of Pilate, though Pilate had decided to release him. But you rejected the Holy and the Righteous One and asked to have a murderer be given to you. The irony is crystal clear. And David Garland writes, Jesus, he writes this, he says, Jesus is turned over by the gracious will of God to the deadly will of humans. To show that the power of God counters the power of darkness and for a moment the will of God will be that the will of the devil triumphs. For a moment it was God's will that Satan's will triumphed. And this is the mystery of our salvation. That the wickedness of men can accomplish the will of God. And a takeaway of that for each one of us is to rest in the power and knowledge that nothing can thwart the will of God. Nothing can interrupt God's sovereign will for the world and for you. Even the very things which seem to derail Your plans or God's plans. God can actually use to accomplish his will. It doesn't matter what it is. That's the way sovereignty works. Rebellion, disobedience cannot thwart the will of God, the will of a sovereign God. That's something that we talk about a lot. We talk about the sovereignty of God. Not all traditions talk about the sovereignty of God much. Some people don't like it very much but we rest in the sovereignty of God because we know that God reigns, that his power is absolute, and even the things that seemingly throw us off course, actually God can use for his glory and for our good. That is one of many lessons of the trial of Jesus, that the wickedness of men accomplishes the plans of God. And in closing, I simply want to say may we see every tragedy, every painful experience as an opportunity for God to reveal His glory and accomplish His will for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You now that You allowed wicked men to carry out their devilish plans But in reality, it was your will that was being fulfilled by sending a Savior to die as a sacrificial lamb for our sins. Jesus' trial, somewhat of a kangaroo court, was still a part of the divine plan before all ages to accomplish our redemption that one who is innocent should take the guilt of the many. It was our guilt that condemned Jesus, though he was innocent. And we stand today in awe, O God, in humble recognition that we were guilty. And our sins were so bad that the Son of God had to die for them. Father, now may we live every single day in the realization and crystal clear recognition of that fact and be grateful. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.